This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. And thanks for joining us for the latest episode of the Money and Markets podcast. We've got a stellar lineup today with our very own Ryan Hughes on the show to talk about why one low-risk asset hasn't been performing well. Joining me in the hosting chair and with a market update on everything from Alphabet to Wix is Danny Hewson. Hi, Laura. Also on the podcast today, we have Laith Kalaf with some cracking research that he has produced pitting man against machine, looking at how fund managers have performed against robots. And it's not pretty reading for fund managers. We've also got an interview with an investment trust focused on the S part of ESG and a little preview of interest rates next week. But as ever, let's crack on with the markets update first. So Danny, it's been a bit of a mixed week in markets, some winners, some big losers. But let's start, let's start on a positive note. Who is winning this week? Yeah, it's odd to be starting with some positive news. And some people might find it quite odd that during a cost of living crisis, some of Europe's largest consumer focused firms have been really big winners. No shortage of demand, despite, you know, people really focusing on their budgets. And several have actually upgraded sales forecasts for the current year. So we've heard from uh, Reckitt Benkiser, the maker of Dettol and Lysol, um, raising full year revenue forecasts despite steep price hikes, because that effectively um, has helped it beat its uh, second quarter sales expectations. Uh, You know, you might be surprised, Unilever's the same sort of thing as well. Um, Despite this inflationary shock that we're talking about all the time, uh, people are willing to pay for brands like Domestus, uh, like Dove Soap, like Hellman's mayonnaise. Now, the first two, in many ways, you can kind of understand because things like healthcare and cleaning products and things like that, a lot of people would rather pay more for the brands that they know and trust. But also, there's quite a bit as well when it comes to brands that we like, brands that we feel that we can't do without. And that's been a similar story at uh, a couple of huge American companies, McDonald's, obviously fast food, home of the Big Mac, and Coca-Cola following in, in Pepsi's footsteps. They have both proved incredibly resilient, customer loyalty really helping them maintain sales. Your daughter, Laura, probably isn't at a point yet where she'll say, I don't want that, I want something else. But my kids have very clear ideas on on the things that they like and and don't like. Have you ever come across that sort of catch-up moment yet? (laughs) She's not like brand specific yet, I would say, but she definitely knows what food she likes and doesn't like. But she's yet to have her first McDonald's. The Happy Meal joy is yet to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, mine have graduated from Happy Meals now, um, which is quite good because we used to have drawers full of the um, little toys that you got from Happy Meals. And eventually at some point you just have to clean them all out into a bin bag and sort of wince as you realise quite how much stuff you're getting rid of. But a a lot of people are deciding that when it comes to 
that small treat, those little luxuries, that they are prepared to pay just that little bit more in order to, you know, continue to have the same brand. It's it's not the same for an awful lot of products, which is why we're seeing some supermarkets talking about, you know, their, their value brands going through the roof. But it does seem to be that despite that sort of cost of living thing, people are prepared to pay at the moment that little bit more. Whether or not it will continue as inflation rises and things get tighter, it's unclear at the moment. But the other thing that we've seen quite a lot of as well is that um, people that have an awful lot of money, so when you're talking about sort of high-end brands, those businesses are doing really well. And uh, LVMH, you know, the, the Moet and Chandon retailer, the world's biggest luxury goods firm, well, they reported better than expected second quarter sales. A lot of that is down to the fact that huge numbers of US tourists are heading to Europe and taking advantage of a strong dollar. And despite uh, an issue with sales being hit in China, they've said that they've had, you know, it's been more than made up for. And also Mercedes are saying that um, they're seeing sales rise as well. We also had an update from a number of banks and Lloyd's Banking Group, uh, Britain's largest domestic lender, hiked its dividend and full year profitability forecast. That's despite lower first half earnings and, you know, concerns about the country's economy. Um, we've obviously got rising rates and that is helping banks out, particularly because Lloyd's has really added to its mortgage book. It swelled over three billion pounds during the last period. And, you know, the, the buoyant property markets really helped the domestic facing banking group. Although what was really interesting was to hear um, its chief executive telling uh, reporters that one in five of its 26 million customers is adapting spending. So we've got 2.2 million cancelling subscriptions, you know, things like Netflix. We've also got an average family spending £89 a month more on energy and food. But those are the companies, just a few of the companies where we've had some pretty bright spots. Um, We also had some good news from Microsoft and Alphabet. Now, this was really important because we've we've had some bad news from the tech sector recently. And it, it must be said that investors were really nervous about what uh, Microsoft and the Google owner would say in their last lot of results. And there were issues, but it wasn't as bad as people had expected. Things like, you know, advertising slowdown, it it wasn't impacting quite so much. And and both of them had robust cloud computing businesses. So the fact that they have good, solid, focused, long-term strategies has really sort of settled uh, investor nerves. And uh, that was something which, uh, you know, considering some of the bad news we've had, we know has gone down quite well. Yeah, it'd be really nice to just do a positive market segment and ignore all the negative news, but that probably <laughs> wouldn't be very responsible. So we must touch on the less positive news of the week. So which companies haven't fared so well or have come out with um, less than positive results? Well, late last week, um, we had an update from Snap and uh, that was 
pretty torrid. Um, it, it made um, uh, posted sales of, of 1.11 billion, which was down on the estimates that it had. But the big news was all about operating profits. So adjusted operating profits crashed 94%. It's not often we say that, Laura, that uh, profits have fallen 94%. But that is a huge number. And of course, as you would expect, it it, uh, really sent uh, investors scurrying and um, share price tumbled quite significantly. Now, Snap did have a little bit of good news. Its uh, number of daily active users had had gone up more than had been expected, but it just wasn't enough to persuade investors that you know the outlook was good. And we also had an update from Twitter, and we know that Twitter has been in the news over the last few months because of of the spat that they're having with uh, Elon Musk, who decided he wanted the business, then decided he didn't want the business. Well, it reported an unexpected drop in revenue, uh, weakening sales from advertising, and they blamed falling confidence because of what's been going on with Elon Musk. Now, today, Wednesday, as we're recording this, uh, Twitter's just set a date for shareholders to vote on Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover offer. Now, that's despite the fact that he said he no longer wants to buy it. The social media platform has sent a letter to shareholders saying they're going to hold this special virtual meeting on September the 13th to vote on the offer. But, you know, all of this at the moment is going to go through the courts and uh, we'll wait and see what happens with that. Um, Elsewhere, just briefly, no surprises um, with the travel sector seeing, well, quite trying times. Um, Wizair has said that it is going to cut more into the schedule of summer flights, saying that they've been going through some real pain in terms of staff shortages at airports. Um, The budget carrier posted a statutory loss of 380 million, despite an increase of 300% in both passengers and revenue, which just, you know, demonstrates the impact that, that rising costs is having on the sector. But the really big shock of the week came from Walmart. I was saying earlier that in, in some cases, consumers have proved remarkably resilient. But in other cases, shoppers are reducing the spending on more expensive items. And that is something which has really impacted uh, Walmart. Its shares fell almost 8% in after-hours trading on Tuesday. Um, The company said that earnings per share would drop by as much as 13%. Um, And that had a sort of knock-on effect where other uh, retailers were also seeing that their stocks being sold off. So Target, Amazon, Home Depot, also retailers on the UK markets as well, JD Sports, Marks & Spencers, B&M, all tumbling as did Wix, you know, the DIY store, not just because of what's been going on with Walmart, but Wix delivered its own update and a profit warning there. It said that um, basically demand for DIY and other home improvements was 
showing signs of softening. So although sales were up uh, ahead of the previous year in the first half, only up just 0.8%. And it's the outlook which is really focusing people's minds. And with it seeing that there is a slight cooling of the housing market and definitely signs that people are putting those big ticket items, things that they don't need to do right away, that they're sort of saving them for a later date, that is just going to impact its sales, it says, in its core DIY business in the second quarter. And of course, you know, it, it is all about inflation. And that is why central banks are raising rates to get to grips with inflation. And markets today on Wednesday, as I say, as we're recording this, are, are kind of treading water because we are expecting that the latest from the US Federal Reserve about what they're doing with interest rates. And of course, you know, we've got some big news coming next week as the Bank of England makes another announcement on rates in the UK. What are we expecting there, Laura? Yeah, so on the 4th of August is the next decision by the Bank of England on whether it increases rates. Um, and I think essentially what we're expecting now is they're definitely going to raise rates. And what markets are expecting is that rather than increasing it by a quarter of a percent, which is what they've done so far, they're actually going to increase it by half a percent. So that would mean the interest rates went from one and a quarter percent to one and three quarter percent which would make it the highest interest rates we've seen since 2008. Also, by increasing it by that half a percentage point, that would be the largest increase in rates we've seen since 1995, so almost 30 years. And I think what we're seeing is a combination of we saw inflation rise again in May, which are the latest figures um, that we saw and expected to carry on increasing into the winter. Um, we saw better than expected UK growth figures. And we've also had a lot of comments from a few different members of the um, committee that set rates saying they're willing to go faster and higher than they have before. So it feels like that chunky interest rate is interest rate rise, sorry, is almost inevitable. I'll say that with the caveat that ahead of people might remember back in November last year, everyone was saying interest rates are definitely going to rise. And I think I joined the fray of that. And then um, they didn't rise and I had egg on my face. So this is definitely not certain, <laughs> but it is what markets are expecting and, and um, what we're likely to see is what I would say. But it's not going to stop there. The Bank of England themselves have said that they will plan to carry on increasing rates. Um, and so this is kind of a chunkier than usual move upwards, but it's not the end of their rate rising because they're still trying to tackle those big inflation figures that are expected to get higher yet um, in October, particularly when the energy price cap changes. We're expecting them to leap to around 11%. And the bank is really trying to use rate rises as a way to limit that. A lot of um, people at the time were calling the Bank of England an unreliable boyfriend, I remember, because markets really were caught on the hop. You, you absolutely weren't alone. There's been quite a lot of um, discussion about whether or not the Bank of England acted fast enough, whether it's going far enough, there's a balance it's trying to strike here. 
Exactly. And I think um, we could debate till the cows come home about whether they acted fast enough, but we are where we are now. We can't go back in time. Um, and to be honest, if I went back in time, I'd probably do less geeky things than influencing the Bank of England's <laughs> rate setting committee. Um, but yeah, they're in a real balancing act here between increasing rates too high um, and too fast, and then that potentially tipping the UK into recession or not moving them fast enough and then being accused of not containing that inflation. Um, there's a few factors in there. I mean, inflation is largely caused by um, global issues rather than specific domestic issues that can necessarily be controlled so well by interest rates. Um, but the other competing factor is that we did see better than expected um, growth figures for the UK, which I think will have given them a bit more push to raise rates um, because they feel like maybe that risk of recession is a little further away or can tolerate slightly higher interest rates. But it's such a tricky balancing act. And also at the bottom of that, I mean, we talk about all of these kind of big economic things and interest rates and inflation, but actually um, what really matters is how people in the UK are feeling. And, and at the moment, what they're being hit with is a double whammy of rising prices everywhere from supermarkets to petrol pumps to energy bills to pretty much everywhere, but also interest rates rising, which is good news for savers, but um, not good news for anyone on a mortgage that's going to come up um, for renewal soon or that's on a variable rate and people with debt. So I think a lot of people feel like they're being squeezed from both sides here by both inflation and interest rate rises. What we could do with a time machine, Laura? <laughs> I can't I just, even think the possibilities. Well, that that huge lottery win um, from the other <laughs> night. Maybe I would have actually played, bought a ticket. <laughs> Next up, with that rate rise news looming, we thought it would be useful to look at bond markets. So it's not the sexier side of investing, but with predictions of a recession potentially rising, and with markets having been more volatile, people might be seeking these more safe haven assets. So we've got Ryan Hughes from the AJ Bell investment team here to explain more. Ryan, can you just give us a little bit of a backdrop of what's been happening in bond markets at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, bond markets have been hugely volatile really over the last six to nine months. Uh, and that is all to do with the expectations of what central banks like the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve in the US uh, will do with interest rates. Uh, and of course, we've seen them go up over the course of this year, uh, and there remain expectations that they'll go up even further. Uh, and this has caused huge volatility on the bond markets, um, mainly because when interest rates go up, the price of bonds goes down. Uh, and, and therefore, it's made a for a pretty troubling time for people that might be looking to use bonds as what traditionally be seen as a lower risk uh, asset or maybe a safe haven asset. For the um, more novice investors out there, can you explain a bit about that relationship between interest rates rising and, and bonds going down, just to put it in real simple terms? Yeah, ab absolutely. So when the government uh, issues a bond or a gilt, as it is known, uh, alongside that gilt comes an interest rate that the government will pay you for lending the government uh, money. Uh, and it, it's likely to be a fixed rate. So let, let's pick a number. Let's pick around a number. It's going to be a 3% uh, gilt uh, there. And the price of that gilt um, is, is basically related to 
the the interest rate, the payment that comes from it known as the coupon. Uh, and if interest rates are going up, then investors, quite rightly, you say to the government, well, if we're going to lend you money, you need to pay us a higher interest rate for the privilege of lending you money. So as interest rates go up, investors want a greater return. Uh, and, and therefore, that pushes down the price of uh, those bonds that the government or indeed a company uh, has issued. So rates going up means the price of bonds goes down. Rates going down means the price of bonds goes up, as maybe those bonds are actually already offering an interest rate that's higher than the current rate um, from the Bank of England. So there is uh, there is what's known as an inverse relationship uh, between the two. Uh, and with the expectation of rates going quite a bit higher in the UK and indeed the US and around the world, uh, that's why you've seen the price of bonds uh, fall. And are we expecting volatility to continue for the foreseeable? I think we are for a while, because until uh, until the, uh, the the stock market and the global economy and all the people involved in that get some confidence on what's likely to happen with inflation, uh, that, because that's one of the real reasons why the central banks are looking to increase interest rates, because they want to try and tackle high inflation. Until we get some confidence that inflation is under control and likely to start coming down, the expectation will be that interest rates go even higher. Uh, and so with that kind of forward-looking path over the next 6, 12 months, uh, it's highly likely that there'll be even more pressure on the bond market uh, as investors price in maybe you know, what could easily be three, four, five, six interest rate rises uh, over the coming months and beyond. And so what does that mean for investors that do want those kind of safe haven assets now? What does it mean for those that wanted to move into the, the bond markets? Yeah, so really importantly, uh, with, with any investment, of course, is uh, is time horizon. Uh, and this is one of the challenges that, that investors in lower risk assets or traditionally lower risk assets such as bonds have seen uh, over the last year, um, is that normally they would be seen to be relatively low volatile assets. And in fact, you've seen the UK government bond market fall by over 10% this year alone. Now, I'm sure many of you listening there would, would ex- wouldn't expect to, for me to say a low risk asset is fallen, has fallen by 10% in only seven months. So yeah, this really is uh, quite a challenge uh, over short periods of time. So it's a reminder that even things such as government bonds can be volatile. They can lose money quickly. Of course, you've only lost that money if you sell and you crystallize that loss. If you're holding for a long period of time, maybe you're saving for your future or wanting, uh, you've got a set event to pay for in two, three, five, ten years time and you want to own a a bond to do that, uh, then these volatility, these movements, this volatility is not a huge impact on you. uh, But I suspect the bond market will continue to be volatile and those funds and investments that invest in bonds uh, and there are lots of them out there uh, might be a little bit more volatile than you're used to seeing uh, over the over the coming 12 to 18 months I suspect. Ryan thank you so much Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell's investment team. Um, We all know the reason we're talking about bonds and safe havens is that a lot of people have been looking at markets and thinking, well, they've not exactly covered themselves in glory lately. Um, But our head of investment analysis, Laith Kalaf, has been digging into the age old question of whether during tricky market times, it is better to invest with a human fund manager making stock picks for you 
or a market tracker, which rides the ups and downs of markets. Leith, what have you been comparing? Yeah, hi, Danny. Yeah, we've been looking um, basically at seven uh, key sort of equity sectors, over over a thousand funds um, in our sample, just to see sort of how active managers have done uh, against index trackers, uh, so passive funds in, in their respective sectors. Um, and we did this last year and we've done it again. Uh, we've done it again this year. Um, interestingly, last year, we, we, we looked at the whole year, we found that actually only around 34%, so uh, just over a third of active managers, had outperformed the average passive fund, uh, so the average passive alternative um, in their respective sectors. So that wasn't a particularly good showing last year. Uh, and as you say, this year, you might have expected that actually markets have been falling. It, it might have been a better time to be an active manager because, you know, passive funds just blindly buy whatever the biggest stuff is in, in, in the index. But but actually, um, we've found that um, that actually the, the proportion of active managers has actually that have outperformed a passive alternative has actually fallen, uh, not hugely, but down to down to 30 percent. Um, so we've now got a less than a third of um, of active funds have actually outperformed so far this year. Have you been surprised by what you found? I think so. Yeah, I mean, when you dig down into the causes of it, I think um, things become a little bit a little bit clearer um, because a large part of the, the, the kind of downturn in active management um, actually came from um, one particular sector that we were looking at, and that's the UK. Um, and um, in, in the UK, only 12%, uh, so just over one in 10 active managers beat an index tracker uh, in the first half of the year. And uh, the main reason for that um, is, um, is, is the, the kind of structure of the UK market and how it's performed so far this year. Um, so if you look at you know, the, the UK market, we tend to think of it in terms of the FTSE indices. The benchmark index is the FTSE 100, which is the 100 biggest companies in, in, in the stock market. That's down 1% so far this year. So it's actually been a really good year, relatively speaking, compared to everything else for the FTSE 100. And of course, a lot of that comes down to the fact that, you know, some of the some of the companies within that are, are energy stocks, which have which have actually been kind of enjoying, enjoying better times than the, a lot of the rest of the market. So, so minus one percent for the FTSE 100, not a great year, but compared to every you know other market, it's doing pretty well. The FTSE 250, which is you know the mid 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 cap um, uh, area of the market, so medium sized companies, that's down by over nineteen percent. So a very very big difference there. Um, and if you then look at the small cap area of the market, that's down by fifteen percent. And, and, and the reason I'm saying that is that actually, if you look at where active managers tend to invest, they tend to invest further down the cap scale than a passive fund, because a passive fund just puts money into companies depending on their size in the market, whereas active fund managers will try and get an edge over the market. And that tends to lead them to, to kind of medium and small, smaller companies, um, you know, part, partly because you know, actually, if you think about something like Shell, it's got a 7%, um, you know, weighting in, in the index. So that's actually would be quite a punchy position for an active manager to have in that stock. But also how much of an edge are they really going to have at, Shell, you know, kind of kind of buying or selling Shell? You know, it's it's a well-known company. It's got loads of eyes on it. Whereas they can tend to unearth, um, I guess, hidden gems a bit further down, uh, down the caps scale in the FTSE 250 and the small caps. So, you know, if you look at your typical active fund, um, it's, 
it's skewed towards mid and small caps compared to an index tracker. And because of that big differential in performance so far this year, that's been a big swing factor in performance of the UK, uh, UK active managers and by extension, the rest of the pool that we're looking at. Um, and what about over the longer term? Because obviously um, this is just looking at the first half of this year. So are those trends of kind of active managers um, underperforming? Is that also true over kind of five or 10 years? Yeah, I mean that's that's a good question because actually, if you're a, if you're an investor, the longer term is is much more important. So um, you shouldn't you shouldn't really be judging active performance over over six months. Um, it's interesting to look at, but actually, the long term is is what really matters. Uh, and things do look better um, over the long term. Uh, so we looked over a ten year period, um, and we found that actually forty five percent of of active funds outperformed uh, a passive alternative over the long term. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of around the 50% mark, isn't it? So I guess your view on that is probably whether you're kind of glass half full or glass half empty kind of person. I guess, you know, you <laughs> could say, empty. well, always empty. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people who like passive investment will say, well, actually kind of around 50% of active managers are, are underperforming. Um, you know, if you if you turn it the other the other way around, you can say, well, actually, fifty percent are outperforming. So that gives people, you know, a, a large number of funds to choose from if they can if they can tilt their odd, the odds in their favour. And, and I think probably, you know, I think they can because, you know, if you if if you think about it as you know, if the figures are saying that over ten years it's basically a coin toss, you know, whether you're picking a, a, a an active fund that outperforms or not. Actually, that's assuming that you're kind of picking it, you know, blindfolded with a dartboard kind of thing. But that's not really how people choose funds, is it? Most people are not trying to, you know, choose an average active fund. They're trying to choose a good active fund. And, and typically they will look at a, a, tra- a fund manager's track record to do that. Um, and, and of course, that's no guarantee of future performance. But, you know, if you've got a fund manager who's outperformed the market over a 10 year period, it's hard to kind of argue that that's entirely down to luck. So, you know, if, if you can get some, you know, a, a portfolio of managers of that ilk, then I think you've probably got a, a good chance of getting out performance uh, from your portfolio. It's also slightly interesting to note that, you know, the the, the proportion of active managers who, who outperform um, over, over kind of a 10-year period is quite variable depending on the markets that you're looking at. So, the UK again is actually a bright spot over the ten, over ten years. If you look at that, then sixty three percent of active managers have outperformed, so almost two thirds. Um, and again, that may be coming down to the same things that we were talking about before, which is that they're overweight mid and small caps, which have actually over the long term performed a lot better than the FTSE one hundred and have been good places to be. So. Um, actually, you know, kind of that's, you know, that's that's a positive tale for, for UK active management. You look across the pond in, in North America, uh, in, in, in the US, um, then, you know, the picture is, is kind of more nuanced. You're talking about kind of only around a third of active managers outperforming over uh, over over 10 years. Um, and that may simply be because you know there's so many more eyes on that market um, that it's um, you know, not, not as well served by, by active managers. Um, so, you know, you can also perhaps be a bit clever about where you're buying active funds and where you're buying passive funds. 
um, because of course, as a, as a as an investor, you don't have to choose one or another. You can have kind of a mixed portfolio um, of both to both kind of you know hedge your risk and also maybe you know choose active managers in the areas where they've been shown to do best. Amazing. Thanks for that, Leith. Really appreciate it. Um, and finally, this week, the Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust launched in late 2020 with the goal of helping society and making money for investors. Dan Coatesworth met up with fund manager Jeremy Rogers to find out where the trust is deploying its money and what investors might expect from it in the future. So, Jeremy, could you briefly explain where the Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust is actually deploying investors' money? Hello, uh, great, great to be here with you. I, I'm a fan, actually, and a, and a regular listener of the podcast. Um, Fantastic. So the, so, the social, so the Social Impact Trust that invests in organisations that are tackling issues across the UK, such as homelessness, domestic abuse, fuel poverty. We're looking for those business models in those areas that can deliver high-quality risk-adjusted returns to investors alongside significant social impact. The principal asset classes we invest in are, are residential property, lending to social enterprises and, and social outcomes contracts. Well, brilliant. So I know that you've published a report recently that shows the impact of your investment. So what was sort of the key findings from that report? Absolutely. So some of the headlines from that report are that the trust investments are so far helping support over 160,000 people, of whom over 90% are disadvantaged and vulnerable that our investments have helped deliver over 10,000 affordable homes and helped generate more than 55 million of savings to government and low-income households. Most of all though, what the impact report really highlights though is the stars of the trust, which are the over 160 local enterprises who are delivering significant impact in their communities alongside good returns for investors. We, we think the case studies of our investments really illustrate what we do best and I'd really encourage your listeners to take a look at the impact report to, to find out more. Maybe to share one example, so Hull Women's Network was established in 2004 to provide housings to families fleeing domestic abuse. The cost of domestic abuse to government and wider society can be really quite significant, estimated at around 66 billion a year, and, and the Cabinet Office estimate that every one pound that is invested tackling domestic abuse, it can deliver over seven pounds in savings the social value. So the investment model here is around purchasing normal houses and normal streets with income coming from statutory government payments of, of different sorts. With the investor returns coming from yield and house price growth, the particular investment targets are 7% IRR alongside providing refuge services for over 300 women and children. We have so many great examples like that in our portfolio and, and we have a map on our website where shareholders can zoom in and really see the organisations that are delivering impact in their local area and find case studies, I guess, like our women's work. So, I mean, in terms of what you think the trust might invest in in the future, have you got like a pipeline of sort of specific opportunities that you'd pursue if the trust raised more cash? Um, I get the impression that you, you might have far more opportunities than you can actually, uh, you've got the money to sort of deploy. That's right. I mean, we see significant opportunities across especially housing, local social services and, and supporting the transition to net zero for low income households. Some specific examples in our immediate pipeline include a co-investment in a community energy project tackling poverty and a, and a fund focused on both affordable housing and local social infrastructure. OK, so what, I mean, a lot of people 
been interested in sort of ESG investing in recent years. So that's environmental, social and governance. But it, it does seem that there's only a limited number of investment products that specifically focus on the social side. I just wondered if you thought that's because perhaps it's it's harder to make a return on social initiatives compared to sort of environmental solutions. Yeah, it, it's certainly true that, that the market is less developed on the social side, perhaps especially in listed markets. Um, at Big, Big Society Capital, we've been invested in UK social impact investments for over 10 years now, um, in which time, according to our estimates, the market's grown from under a billion to over six billion, but most of that is in private markets. Uh, there are significant institutional investors, such as pension funds and endowments, who, who are allocating to UK social investments and we see that market really growing further to 10 to 15 billion by 2025. So, so the opportunity set, if you like, is, is growing pretty fast. Um, we launched the Social Impact Trust with Schroders to give listed investors access to those opportunities in private markets. That's often where the, the best high social impact opportunities lie. Um, in terms of you know, specifically your question on returns, you know, as with any investing, this is about finding the areas where the business models and the risk return really stack up. Clearly, actually, as with environmental investing, there are lots of areas where, where investment can't help. But what we've seen is where the right factors exist, investment can be, be really transformational. So, I mean, I'd certainly know that at the moment, investors sort of perhaps be troubled by what's been going on in the stock market. And they're kind of looking for opportunities that are perhaps uncorrelated to sort of the mainstream equity market. So would you say that the Schroeder BSE Social Impact Trusts is one of these sort of uncorrelated assets and um and i guess you know how have you actually performed on the market um you know so far this year yeah we're certainly aiming for the trust to have a low correlation to mainstream markets with a focus really on business models where the value drivers are, are distinct um you know the, the areas we invest in are driven primarily by, by government revenue of different types and that's been historically resilient through, through cycles and um, certainly the attraction of um, the investments for some of the institutional investors who invest alongside us in projects as they provide diversification to other areas of their portfolio. In terms of your, your question about performance on this year, so, so we're pleased that, that the trust has performed well in, in what is a really challenging environment for investors. I believe the average investment trust is down 90% so far this year. The social impact trust shares are up 2% year to date, so an outperformance of, of around 20%. What and you know longer term? What do you think that if someone put money into this trust, what what could they expect in terms of annual returns? You mentioned for for your one of your housing investments, you're looking sort of seven percent. Yeah, do you think that's sort of indicative of the, the trust as a whole? Yeah, so so our target returns are CPI plus two percent over three to five years when fully invested. Um, around two thirds of the asset allocation benefits from in, inflation in some way, so it helps provide some resilience and returns in, in an inflationary environment. It is worth noting that investors should not expect us to track inflation on a year-by-year -year basis, and we will not be delivering returns of CPI plus 2% over the short term, consistent with the high inflation we're seeing. What we will see, though, is really the revenue benefits of our inflation flowing through to our portfolio over time, which will help us deliver our, our target return over the medium term. Importantly, I guess, across the, uh, alongside the high quality returns, we believe the trust investments can offer diversification benefits for investors' portfolios alongside delivering the significant social impact that, that, that they do across the UK. Well, Jeremy, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's really interesting to hear about the, the Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust.
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dan Coatesworth talking with fund manager Jeremy Rogers from the Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust. Uh, That's everything for this week. Big thanks to all of our guests and to all of you for listening. Do make sure you rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so that you don't miss an episode. And if you like the podcast, then do recommend it to friends or family who want a weekly investing and personal finance update so that we can carry on growing this community of people listening to it. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.